The morning of Saturday, the 19th of July, 1969, dawned muggy and slightly overcast in Martha's Vineyard, the popular holiday destination just off the coast of Massachusetts. But Dominic Arena, the police chief for the village of Edgartown, had more important things on his mind than the weather as he made his way to Chappaquiddick Island just after eight o'clock in the morning. Two fishermen had spotted a car that was submerged in the shallow water by the island's dike bridge. There didn't seem to be anyone around to claim the car, but Arena knew there was a good chance the driver was stuck inside. Arriving at the scene just before 8.30, Arena had a quick look at the car, but couldn't quite glimpse inside for himself. He had to wait until a scuba diving team confirmed what he had feared. There was indeed a body in the car, that of a young woman. But the police were mystified by where the woman's body had been found, she was sitting not in the driver's seat, but in the passenger seat. That came as a surprise to Arena and his colleagues, and they wondered where the driver had gone. Perhaps they'd managed to escape, or perhaps their body had been taken by the currents. But the surprise at where they had found the woman's body was nothing compared to the surprise the police had when they found out who the car belonged to. Running the number plates that morning, they realised that the car belonged to a Massachusetts senator. And not just any senator. A senator who belonged to one of the most famous and most powerful families in the country. A senator whose older brother had been president not six years previously. The car that was submerged next to the Dyke Bridge that morning belonged to Senator Edward Kennedy. And now the police were wondering, where on earth had he gone? Hello again, and welcome back to the Ministry of History podcast. Today, we're going to be continuing our focus on historical scandal by discussing the Chappaquiddick incident. Senator Edward Kennedy belonged to the most famous political dynasty probably in the whole of American history. He was the youngest brother of President John F. Kennedy and Senator Robert Kennedy, and his own political future seemed bright. But in July of 1969, a car that he was driving crashed off a bridge and into a tidal river. The senator managed to escape, but his passenger, Mary Jo Kopechny, didn't. And that is only half the story. K 
Kennedy's actions after the crash were dubious, to say the very least. Did he try to save Kopechny? Why didn't he report the crash straight away? Why did he return to his hotel room, sleep on it, and only then decide that he might want to inform authorities of what happened? We'll get into all of that and more. But firstly, I just want to make my usual plea for you to leave a review. Make it simple, hit the five star button and don't think twice about it. Good reviews really are such an important way of helping the podcast to grow. So if you have a spare moment, please don't hesitate to do so. I also just need to be a little cheeky again and point you towards my Buy Me A Coffee donation page. It's the easiest way to donate to me, to help me to cover equipment costs and other overheads. Like anyone else, I need to make this project of mine sustainable. So head over to the Buy Me A Coffee donation page. The link is in the description of this podcast and donate whatever you feel like. Finally, as always, don't forget to check out the blog and my Twitter page. The blog is the Ministry of History on Google and it's the top result. And the Twitter page is at Ministry History, all one word with no of in the middle. Now then, let's take you back in time and set the scene, give a bit of background to one of the most notorious scandals of the 1960s. Before I start off properly with this background, I just want to say at the outset that I don't want to misrepresent my angle here. I am going to give background on Kennedy's life and I am going to be sympathetic to the very real and very public personal tragedies he suffered in the years before this incident. But I don't want that to be misconstrued as me apologising for what he did that night in July of 1969. That's certainly not what I intend to do. My only aim in providing these biographical details is to provide some interesting and relevant background to the story. Edward Kennedy was born on the 22nd of February 1932 in Boston, Massachusetts. Teddy, as he was known, was the youngest of nine children born to Rose Fitzgerald and Joe Kennedy Sr. The Kennedy family were one of the wealthiest in America and they seemingly had it all. All of them were attractive, charismatic, well-connected and of course, fabulously wealthy. Joe Sr. was the American ambassador to Britain in the 1930s and young Teddy spent time at elite British private schools and at the British Royal Court itself. It was no doubt a privileged upbringing, but that didn't mean it was always easy. 
His mother and father were loving parents and they adored their children, but they had a rather dysfunctional marriage. Joe Sr. was brazen about his extramarital affairs, and not only did he not bother to hide them from his wife, but he didn't bother to hide his affairs from his children either. The Kennedy boys, particularly John and Ted, would become notorious when they were adults for their horrible treatment of women, and it's not hard to see why when that was the example set by their father. Then, a series of tragedies started to strike the family. In 1944, when Ted was 12, his eldest brother, Joe Kennedy Jr., was killed in action over the English Channel as a fighter pilot during the Second World War. Then, in 1948, when Ted was 16, his eldest sister, Kathleen Kennedy, was also killed in a plane crash. Still, the family marched on and Joe Senior threw his considerable financial muscle behind his son's political careers. In 1960, the second son, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, was elected president and he selected the third son, Robert Kennedy, to be his attorney general. Ted was still the baby of the family, but he had grown into an imposing man. He was taller than his older brothers, standing at six foot two, with a mop of jet black hair, piercing blue eyes, and a strong jawline to boot. There's no doubt about it, he was a handsome man, and he married his first wife, Joan, in 1958. They had three children together, but like I've mentioned earlier, Ted was no different from the other Kennedy men in his treatment of women. As John Kennedy had helpfully whispered to his youngest brother on his wedding day, just because you're married doesn't mean you have to be faithful. In 1962, Ted was elected to John's former Senate seat in Massachusetts. The three brothers were President, Attorney General and Senator for Massachusetts. The Kennedy family had reached the pinnacle. But then tragedy struck again. In November of 1963, John Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. Robert Kennedy, who was affectionately known as Bobby, made his own run for the presidency in 1968 and he seemed to be doing well. But then he too fell victim to an assassin's bullet in June that year. One of Bobby Kennedy's aides, Frank Mankiewicz, caught a glimpse of Ted Kennedy in a hospital bathroom minutes after Bobby died. Mankiewicz would later say that he had never seen a man so emotionally wrecked as Ted Kennedy was that day. His father, Joe Senior, 
had been paralysed by a stroke in 1961 and he'd die later in 1969. So, at the age of 36, Ted was now the patriarch of the most famous family in the country. He had to act as a father figure not just to his own children, but to John's two children and Bobby's 11 children. His grief was immense, but he had to put on a brave face for his family and for the cameras. As I said earlier, I'm not telling you all of this because I want you to feel sorry for Ted Kennedy. One of the things I hope to do in my podcasts is really explore the background of a story, who the main characters were, what their life story was, and how that life story could perhaps explain why they acted the way they did. To that end, I really do feel that Ted Kennedy's background is relevant to this story. It's a background which shows him to be both an arrogant, spoiled, reckless adulterer on the one hand, but a genuinely grief-stricken, emotional wreck of a man, battling an inner turmoil behind his public smile. On the other hand, it can't excuse his actions, but it can go some way to explaining them. Over a year after Bobby Kennedy's death, on Friday the 18th of July 1969, Ted Kennedy headed to Martha's Vineyard for the weekend. He paid for a hotel room in Edgartown, which is the main village on the island, but he also rented a cottage on Chappaquiddick Island, which is separated from Edgartown by a narrow passage of water. It was at this cottage that Kennedy hosted a party for a group of women known as the Boiler Room Girls, who had worked on Bobby Kennedy's presidential campaign in 1968. Among the Boiler Room Girls at the party was 28-year-old Mary Jo Kopechny. Born and raised in New Jersey, she had volunteered for John Kennedy's presidential campaign in 1960 and spent the rest of the decade gaining a business degree and continuing her career as a political operative. Kopechny was naturally reserved, but she was quietly confident in her abilities, and for good reason. She was damn good at what she did. She had a savvy eye for politics and a very promising career ahead of her. Bobby Kennedy had hired her as an aide when he was a senator, as she helped him to write speeches when he was a candidate for president. Like everyone on his campaign, Mary Jo had been devastated when Bobby was killed, but she continued her career in politics and likely saw Ted Kennedy 
as someone she could get a job with. The party continued until well into the night and just after 11 o'clock, Ted Kennedy left with Mary Jo Kopechny. This is where the details of what happened get a little murky because of course the only one of those two people who lives to see the morning is Ted Kennedy. We only have his version of events to go on. What we can know for sure is that Kennedy turned east from the cottage, away from Edgartown, towards the Atlantic Ocean. He lost control of his car over the Dyke Bridge, which led over a small tidal stream, and the car ended up upside down and submerged under six feet of water. Kennedy managed to escape the car. Kopechny didn't. Kennedy did not report the incident until the following morning, by which time his car had already been discovered. And that's about all we can know for sure. Like I just said, Ted Kennedy was the only one who could fill in the missing pieces. And I guess you can decide for yourself if you believe him. According to Kennedy, he decided to call it a night and leave the party at around 11 o'clock and he offered Mary Jo Kopechny a lift back to Edgartown. But he accidentally took a wrong turn, heading away from the ferry terminal and towards the eastern edge of Chappaquiddick Island. Unsure of his surroundings and struggling to see through the dark, he had ended up misjudging the width of the dike bridge, lost control of his car and gone over the edge. He managed to free himself and went back under the water seven or eight times in an attempt to free Kopechny as well. Realising that he couldn't reach her, he rushed back to the party cottage to report what had happened to his friends. He then walked back toward Edgartown, swam across the narrow channel that separated the island from the village and collapsed into bed in his hotel room. It was only in the morning that he thought to report the incident. This is how he told the story to police and to the nation in a televised address a week later. He firmly denied being drunk when he crashed and he further denied that Kopechny was in his car for any other reason than a lift back to Edgartown. He admitted that his actions were indefensible and said that his only explanation was that he had suffered shock and concussion in the crash and wasn't thinking straight. There's obviously a few holes in his story. Firstly, Kopechny had left her purse and hotel key at the party 
which wouldn't seem to suggest that Kennedy was giving her a lift back to Edgartown. But that's not the most egregious part. Frankly, who cares if they plan to escape somewhere more private? Kopechny was her own woman, and it wouldn't have been the first extramarital activity that Kennedy had got involved in. Far more important than that was why, if we're to believe Kennedy's version of events, had he not returned with his friends to the scene of the crash to try and save Mary Jo? And why, at the very least, hadn't he reported the incident immediately? It is true that Kennedy suffered concussion and shock as a result of the crash. Doctors confirmed that when they examined him the next day. But even so, that can't explain away his apparent disregard for Kopechny. And it can't explain why his first calls that Saturday morning, before he called the police, were to trusted family and friends. Was this a man in shock, just looking for some reassurance from his loved ones? Or was some sort of sinister cover-up afoot? And what if he hadn't reported the incident immediately for a reason? Kennedy denied that he had been drunk when he crashed his car, and no one could prove otherwise. By the time police made contact with him, there wasn't any point in doing an alcohol test. Convenient, you might say. And especially convenient for a man who was known to be a fairly heavy drinker. Senator Kennedy wasn't shy of having a few beers, and it would seem slightly out of character for him to have not drank at all at a party. Anyway, if you hadn't heard much about this incident before now, I know what you're probably thinking. Kennedy gets charged with manslaughter, right? Well, the problem with that was that to do that, authorities in Massachusetts would have had to prove that he had done something illegal to cause the crash, say, driving drunk or speeding. But as it was, the police didn't have any proof that he'd done anything illegal, aside from leaving the scene. Incidentally, there are some conspiracy theorists who insist that Kennedy murdered Kopechny, but even allowing for his inexcusable behaviour after, I'm not sure that you could say the incident itself was anything other than an accident. In any case, there was no proof that Kennedy had been drunk, no proof of speeding. The only thing that could be proven was that he had left the scene of an accident, and that was what he was charged with. A week after the accident, he pled guilty to the charge and received a two-month suspended prison sentence.
I've spoken before on previous episodes of the podcast about the difference between a court of law and the court of public opinion. So, how was Kennedy found in that court? Well, I guess you could say it was a hung jury. In many ways, Kennedy was incredibly fortunate that the accident happened the very same weekend of the moon landing. On Sunday, the 20th of July, 1969, the world watched in amazement as Neil Armstrong became the first man to walk on the moon. And the news headlines were naturally dominated by that. Kennedy's incident was nowhere near the front pages. But make no mistake, this was still a big scandal. Kennedy did come under intense pressure. In fact, he even offered to resign his Senate seat, but changed his mind after receiving hundreds of supportive letters from constituents. In public, Kennedy attended Kopechny's funeral and appeared dazed, his neck protected by a brace. But in the background, his aides were working aggressively to make sure the scandal didn't sink his career. They used all their connections, called in every favour they could to ensure that Ted Kennedy got a relatively easy ride from the press. On the 30th of July, Kennedy announced that he wouldn't resign and that he would stand for election again in 1970. He won that election comfortably and he remained a senator all the way until his death in 2009. And he was a fairly popular senator at that. He became a champion of progressive causes, pushed aggressively for universal health care, and he was one of the earliest endorsers of an obscure Illinois senator named Barack Obama in the 2008 Democratic primary. Even so, the shadow of the Chappaquiddick incident loomed over him. It's often been said that the scandal cost Ted Kennedy the presidency, and that's probably true. He had probably intended to run for president in 1972, but he couldn't do that so soon after the incident. And of course, his opponent would have been none other than Richard Nixon, and Nixon wouldn't have hesitated for a second to twist the political knife into Kennedy's back. In fact, there's an interesting story from a man named Tony Yulasevich. Yulasevich was one of Nixon's, shall we say, fixers, and he claimed that on the morning Kennedy's car was discovered, he received a call from the White House. It was President Nixon himself, ordering him to get to Chappaquiddick as fast as he could. Nixon viewed Kennedy as a threat, and it's not difficult to imagine that he would have been 
absolutely thrilled when he heard about the incident at Chappaquiddick. Kennedy did run for president in 1980, trying to oust the Democrat incumbent, Jimmy Carter. But while he remained popular in Massachusetts, the country at large couldn't see past the fact that he had left a woman in a car to die. And that is exactly the point. Kennedy was capable of great deeds, but the Chappaquiddick scandal highlighted his worst qualities and the worst qualities of his famous family. He had been reckless, entitled, seemingly more concerned about his own reputation than the life of his passenger. There was also a sense that he had got off lightly, a suspicion that if his surname wasn't Kennedy, then he would have been marched off to prison. If you want my own take, I'd go along with that. I think it's almost certain that any normal person would have gone to prison for what Kennedy did. Maybe it wouldn't be a long sentence, a few months, a year, but certainly not a two-month suspended sentence. And what do I think Kennedy was guilty of? Well, my own sense of it is that he was probably drunk when he crashed the car. I think it's certainly possible he tried to save Mary Jo. But when he couldn't, I think his mind quickly turned to how he was going to preserve his career. I don't doubt that he was in shock. And I don't doubt that the personal tragedies he had suffered had taken their toll on him. But I do suspect that he was thinking more clearly than he admitted to on the night of the incident and the morning after. Basically, I think he killed Mary Jo Kopechny by driving drunk and did his best to cover up the fact that he'd been driving drunk. Ted Kennedy never commented publicly on the incident after his televised speech. Out of respect for Kopechny and her family, he said. Now you can say that's a cynical use of the Kopechny family as a shield, but there is a valid point in there. And the point is that she's almost been forgotten in all of this. The story became about one man's scandal and how it robbed him of the presidency. The story should have been about an intelligent young woman with a promising future ahead of her, who was robbed of that future by the recklessness of an older man. And that was The Chappaquiddick Scandal. I hope you enjoyed listening to it and I hope you found it informative. Join me again next week when I'll be discussing more historical scandal. Before we go, I just want to acknowledge a reference I used to compose this podcast. It's an article. It's called The Surprising Phone Call Ted Kennedy Made to His Mistress After a Woman Died in His Car in Chappaquiddick. 
It was published by People magazine, well on their website, and it was written by Liz McNeil and Tierney McAfee. 